Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Serving the Rogue Valley from Central Point, Oregon. We are a multi-generational family. Equipping believers to be adopted in, growing up, and reaching out through the gospel. And as you uh, sit down, uh, turning your Bibles to Esther chapter 2, we are going to be continuing this story together. And it's, it's different because it is in story form uh, than some of the stuff that we normally look at from God's Word, although a lot of God's Word comes in story form. And uh, so we are going to walk through the next chapter of that story together this morning in Esther chapter 2. And I'm just going to encourage you to keep your Bibles open and follow along uh, uh, as, we, as we walk through that. But speaking of stories, one of the greatest stories that was ever written by any account is uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And maybe you've read that, maybe you've seen the movie. Uh, hopefully it is familiar to you. It's something that is kind of embedded in uh, popular culture at this point. But one of my favorite stories, and one of my favorite parts of that story comes in the second book, the second movie, that's called The Two Towers. Now, if you know the story, there's a group of uh, creatures that have gathered together to deliver the ring, to deliver Middle-earth. Um, they de- they're trying to deliver the ring to Mordor and throw it in the Mount Doom into the fires, etc., etc. And that group is called the Fellowship. And as the Fellowship starts their quest, they are gathered together. And as they continue on in their quest, um, they come to a point where they enter into the mines of Moria. And in that experience, they're attacked by the dark forces, mostly orcs, and they are escaping the orcs. They're trying to get out of the mines, and it is at that point that they have to cross a bridge, and if you're really nerdy and you love it, it's the Bridge of Khazad-dûm, which just sounds intimidating, doesn't it? Dark and, and, and dank. And so they cross the bridge, but in order to hold off the creatures that are advancing, Gandalf stops. He's kind of the spiritual leader of the group. He stops and he holds off the orcs. But in that moment, a demon comes up out of the pit. This Balrog, they call it. Another great name. And grabs Gandalf and takes him down into the depths as the rest of the fellowship watches on. And in that moment, you can feel the despair and the anguish of the fellowship because they've really lost their spiritual leader, and so they exit out safe from the attacking hordes. But there's a moment where they're just bewildered. What do we do? Fast forward a little bit, and they go into the forest. They've broken up now into several different groups, and one of the groups comes into this forest, and they meet their Gandalf again reborn and returning to the group. And Gandalf leads them towards a battle that they have to fight. He gathers a group of riders from the nation of Rohan and they go to the battle. The battle is at a place called Helm's Deep, if you remember that. And it's this fortress that's in the valley, but it's against the cliffs. And Gandalf has said, we're not going to win this battle unless we get some reinforcements. So I'm going to go off and get the reinforcements. Meanwhile, you guys stand and hold the fortress. 
And it's kind of the, the ultimate moment of the book, of the movie, where these forces that know they are not enough to garner a victory stand against the army of the orcs at Helm's Deep, but they keep having to retreat further and further back into the fortress. And there's a moment where the darkness seems to overtake them. Defeat is imminent, and really all hope seems lost. And I think the story does a great job. The author does a great job. The movie uh, directors and cinematographers do a great job of helping us feel the despair and the hopelessness. We think to ourselves, surely the forces of good have been forgotten. We've forgotten about Gandalf going off to get reinforcements. And then all of a sudden, from the ridge, there's a voice. And it's a reminder of Gandalf's promises on the third day, on dawn, at dawn, look to the east. And here comes Gandalf over the ridge with the reinforcements. And there's a brilliant light. And he sweeps down into the valley. And he rides with the reinforcements. And he claims victory from the forces of evil for the forces of good. It's an amazing moment if you remember it. The story is so well told that we feel the despair of those who are facing defeat and then we feel the rescue and victory. And I think we find ourselves sometimes in life like that. Even Christians feel like those soldiers at Helm's Deep retreating further and further. Defeat seems imminent. Circumstances seem hopeless. All hope seems to be lost. And in that moment, when we're there, we sometimes wonder, has God forgotten us? But we find out that, and this is kind of the point of Esther, even when God seems to be absent, we can be confident that he's providentially directing circumstances for the good of his people. Esther is kind of a similar story. There are moments in that story, and it's a story that is a masterstroke of storytelling. There are moments in that story where all hope seems lost. But really, the, the trajectory of the story is, that, is how God uses this one woman to unexpectedly save the nation of Israel. It forces us to kind of contemplate, where do we stand inside that story in human history? What do we do when all hope seems lost? How do we react? And this morning we pick up the story in chapter 2, so let's go there right now. And we meet this young woman for whom the book is named. And in, in verse 1 we read this, Some time later, now remember this recalls back to our mind what has happened in chapter 1. There's a lavish feast thrown by the king that had lasted six months and there was that incident with Vashti. Remember that from last week? And after that, the king had gone to foreign lands to fight battles and win victories. And now, more than four years later, he's come back to Persia. And so now we pick that up and it says, sometime later, and there in verse 1 it says, the king remembered Vashti. All of a sudden, the king, fresh off his battles, is desirous of this queen that will stand by him and be a companion to him. We're going to see what kind of companion in a moment. But the problem is that he has irreversibly deposed Vashti according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, and not even he can change that decision. And so, 
follow along. His advisors, his advisors devise a plan in verse 2. They say to him, let's hold a contest and have young women from all over the kingdom, far and wide, come and be presented and then vie for the attention of the king. And this man, Haggai, who we'll come into contact with in just a moment, he's a eunuch, he's to be put in charge, verse 3. And I can just imagine, can't you? They have these conversations about how they're going to have the contest. And they, maybe they said to one another, we'll put it on TV for the whole kingdom to enjoy. And um, we'll have this bachelor king date a number of women at the same time in order to find true love. Doesn't that sound like a hit TV show? Sounds pretty good. So we find, verse 3, that talent scouts are sent out amongst the kingdom to gather these beautiful women from far and wide. This is what it says, verse 3. Let the king appoint officers, his advisors are telling him this, in all the provinces of his kingdom. Now this is a bit unusual, and I want you to make note of it. Usually, the king would choose from the daughters of those men that stood close to him. Remember chapter 1, verse 14, as Pete preached it, there was these seven men that would see his face. They're, they're kind of his closest advisors. And usually as a political favor to these men, he would choose a queen or a, a mistress or a concubine from among that number. It, it would allow them to have a little bit more influence. So us, knowing the story, think to ourselves, how fortuitous it is that the king ignores that protocol and decides on this unconventional approach. What a coincidence that is. And yet, as we're going to see, this is not the last coincidence that we're going to encounter along the way. In fact, I want you to take note of all of these coincidences along the way. Now, back to the contest. I understand that according to ancient historians and scholars, there might have been 400 or one scholar approximates maybe even 1,500 women who were coming in, who were gathered to draw the attention of the king. Uh, that's kind of a crazy contest. We think 30 women at the same time on TV is a crazy contest. But at this point, the narrator pauses his play-by-play -play of The Bachelor Persia edition, and he introduces us to two main characters in the story. First, verse 5, we meet Mordecai. He's a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, and, and he's said to be, according to the text, a relative of Shimei and Kish. And a lot of times when we're reading the Bible and we encounter a lot of names that don't mean that much to us, we kind of skim those, but we need to stop and take note of these names. You may remember them as being related to King Saul in the Old Testament. There's another coincidence, right? We're going to tuck that one away. We're going to save that one for Pete next week when we meet the, uh, the villain of the story, Haman. But in, in introducing us to Mordecai, the author also reminds us this, that the Jewish nation at this moment in history is in exile. They, are, they have been captured and they've been taken off to Persia. God, God's promises at this point are in serious jeopardy. If you remember your Old Testament history, God had promised them a land, but now they've been taken out of it. God has promised them that they would have special status at his people, but he hasn't protected them from being conquered. What good are those promises now, they might be wondering to themselves. Has God 
forgotten his people? Next, in verse 7, we meet a relative of Mordecai. It's this niece of his that he's adopted. And first, he gives us her Hebrew name, Hebrew name of Hadassah. But for the rest of the book, she's going to be called by her Persian name, Esther, because that's the identity that she really took on. She suppressed that Jewish identity, and she put forward her Persian identity. And we learn, verse 7, that she had neither father nor mother because they had died. And Mordecai adopts her and treats her like his daughter. We also learn this key fact. I love this about Esther. Now, in ancient storytelling, unlike uh, modern storytelling, they don't favor a lot of details and character development. We, we love to know what a character is thinking. We like to know what's inside of them. We like a, a good description so we can get a picture in our mind. But ancient storytelling is very straightforward, just the facts. And so when you get a detail, you're meant to pay attention to them, to it. And look at what it says. It says this, that Hadassah, Esther, had a beautiful figure and she was lovely to look at. Interesting. Interesting. But we want to pay attention to something like that, especially something as descriptive as that. Here's what the storyteller is telling us as he's setting up the story and he's introduced us to the contest. Esther is just the kind of haughty that the king was looking for. She was definitely in line to get the final rose. It was hers to win. And at this point, I think a lot of our minds start to fast forward if we don't know the story. And we start to think to ourselves, oh, I see how this story is going to take shape. This is a familiar story. There's a big, bad, evil king who can't be stopped. And suddenly, from out of left field comes the meek and mild hero who's ultimately going to prevail for a valiant cause. So we're compelled. Let's pay attention to Mordecai. Let's pay attention to Esther. They're going to be the solution to this problem that's been presented in chapter 1. But we got a problem the more we look at Esther and the more we look at Mordecai, the less heroic they seem to be, the less exemplary they seem to be. Esther especially, and Mordecai as well, do a number of things in this story that are at least unsavory to us, if they aren't downright sinful. Let me point some of those things out. We can assume that Esther violated dietary laws and customs, if we look at verse 10, because Mordecai is encouraging her to hide her identity. That would have been one of the ways she would have to have undertaken that, to suppress her Jewish identity. In our, in, in our mind, if we know the biblical story, we might start to think of Daniel and his friends in the book of Daniel. They were in the same circumstances, and yet they put forward their Jewish identity and, and, and took a stand on their integrity to fight for their rights to, to honor those dietary laws. It was Mordecai that encouraged Esther to do this. Hey, don't let anyone know that you're a Jew. And this is in violation of of those Jewish laws. She was basically living as a Gentile when the people of God were meant to live according to the law in order to distinguish themselves from the foreign nations. Now, we know the story, so we fast forward a little bit. In the next little section, we're going to see this young virgin woman spend the night 
with the powerful and lascivious king. And again, Mordecai seems to approve of her immorality. He's encouraged her to have success in seducing the king, if you look at verse 11. In the end, she wins this contest, we come to find out, and our alleged Jewish heroine marries the Gentile king. And this is one of the most clear violations of the covenant between God and his people yet. Now, some people have suggested maybe Esther was forced to do these things against her will. Some have suggested that there are explanations that allow you to get around the fact that she was violating some of these laws and standards of God's people. We don't know that. The author doesn't tell us that. The author doesn't let us in on her thinking and even her reaction to these situations. Why is that? I think we're meant to feel this tension that we've assigned in our minds the idea that Esther and Mordecai are the heroes of the story. We've thought ahead and we've assumed that. And yet, I think the author of Esther does not present Esther and Mordecai as the heroes of the story. And I think this is the important, one of the most important lessons in the books, book of Esther. The characters are not neatly divided into good and evil. We can't simply say, there's the villainous king, there's his evil henchman Haman, who we'll meet next week, they're bad, and then look at Esther and Mordecai and say, they're good, we want to pattern our lives after them. That's not how the author has written this book. Instead, God is the hero of the story. Now you say to me, but he's not even mentioned. Famously in the book of Esther, but we know from reading the rest of scriptures, this is exactly the way that every story in the Bible is meant to be led, read. Now, that doesn't mean that there are not lessons to learn from the people that we encounter along the way. There are behaviors and attitudes that we can emulate. Of course there are, but that's never the main point of the story. Esther is famous for being the only book in the Bible never to mention God by name. In fact, there's not really much religious activity at all. And it's pretty clear that the author uses God's absence and the moral ambiguity of Esther and Mordecai as this technique to force the original Jewish readers of the book to ask the question, where is God in all of this? What's he doing? Why is he waiting to make himself known? And isn't that a question that we ask as people on a pretty regular basis? Natural disaster strikes. A young child contracts a life-threatening illness. We face financial ruin through no fault of our own. Why is God allowing these things to happen to me? I thought he was a God of love. I thought he had our best interests at heart. At home, I have a, 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 a couch pillow, a throw pillow on my couch, and in it is cross-stitched Romans 8.28. But is it really true, we think to ourselves, that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose? Ultimately, the book of Esther considers this question. And it doesn't just consider it in the moment. 
We know the story, probably. God is going to, uh, sorry to spoil the ending for you, by the way, but this is what's going to happen. God is going to end up rescuing his people. And it's going to be through the influence of Esther. But in very particular moments, as we're going to discover in coming weeks, they are in real imminent danger. But here's the secret, is that our timeline is not God's timeline. And the answer to the question, where is God, is sometimes simply, hold on, he'll get there. He's got a plan. It's his timing, not ours. He's going to reveal his will and rescue his people according to his good purposes. Now, one of the things that this book does teach us in relation to Esther and Mordecai is that in real life, and we're going to see this in the coming moments here, there are difficult choices to make. What is right and what is wrong in a given situation is not always patently obvious to us. Life is messy, and the choice between right and wrong can be ambiguous, and when it is, we need to trust God and do our best, knowing that even if we make the wrong choices, it's not going to irreparably damage God's ability to work in the situation, even to work through us. I imagine in later years, Esther may have looked back on the episode we're about to read, and she may have had regret. But in the end, God can use even our mistakes to bring about his purposes. God is the unseen hero working behind the scenes for our good and for his glory. Let's pick up the story again in verse 8. Esther is taken into the king's palace and she catches the eye of Haggai, which is a eunuch that was in charge of the women of the contest. It's, it's another blessed coincidence. Because look at what the verse says in verse 9. Look specifically at what the text says. It says, And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. Just remember that for a second. We tuck that away, make a note of that. We're going to come back to that in just a moment and see exactly what the author is saying, what he's implying by that. But here's what happens is Haggai gives Esther a leg up on the competition. He sees her and he likes her even amongst these possibly hundreds or even more than a thousand women. So he gives her the cosmetics. He gives her the best portions of food. Haggai provides her with seven women that will attend her and make her beautiful and meet her every need. He gives her the master bedroom in the harem, in the palace. She just gets every advantage. And at the instruction of Mordecai, as we mentioned before, verse 10, Esther doesn't make it known that she is a Jew. Now I want to bounce ahead just a second to next week. Because in the next episode of the story, we're going to learn that Haman, the, the chief villain of the story, is an anti-Semite. He is uh, racist against the Jewish race. So it makes sense in that regard to hide it from him. But Mordecai says that before Haman even comes into the story, before he even comes into the picture. So why is that? Certainly possible that 
racism against the Jews, this anti-Semitism is more widespread, but maybe not. The author doesn't say. So why then would Mordecai encourage Esther to hide her identity? Well, again, it doesn't say, but this little act of deception, if you will, deception by omission, serves as another fortunate coincidence as the story develops, right? We know the story that because Esther is not a known Jew, she can fight for the plight of the Jews. Now, back to the contest here, verse 12. And and buckle your seatbelts, by the way, because the details are about to get a little um, spicy. This is rated PG-13, maybe R here. First, verse 12, there's a 12-month period of preparation. And after they've prepared themselves, they all the women have this one night of passion with the king. And the aim of each woman was to make such an impression that the king wanted to be with her again. He remembered her and wanted to be with her. And according to verse 13, every young virgin that went into the king was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And scholars suggest that this was anything from clothing to jewelry to maybe aphrodisiacs. Each young woman had one chance to seduce the king and to please him in a way that he would never forget. And after that, unless the king remembered her by name and asked for her by name, she remained in the harem without any rights or any position, verse 14 says. If she was not called back, she didn't have a right to go outside and marry. She didn't have a a right to live her life outside of the harem. Once she entered the contest, a young woman was essentially a sex slave to the king. You were at the king's disposal to do with as he pleased. And remember, there may have been as many as 1,500 young women competing. So most of the girls, if they even got one night, had only one night, and then they lived the rest of their lives as the king's property. Wouldn't it be a fantastic coincidence if young Esther was the one who found favor among all those young women? I wonder what the chances are that the king remembers her, right? We're about to find out. Verse 15, Esther gets her turn with the king. Remember, she had won favor with Haggai, so he gives her all of the insider information. These are the things that the king likes. These are the things that the king doesn't like, and she follows it to the letter. She doesn't do one thing that Haggai doesn't tell her. In fact, verse 16, she didn't only impress Haggai, but look at verse 16. Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Think about that for a second. One of God's people in a desperate situation, down in the depths, winning favor and rising to a position. Kind of reminds you about another person in the Old Testament, doesn't it? By the name of Joseph. Interesting. Caught in this desperate situation without hope of escape or success, but still able to win favor and gain influence. Now, verses 16 and 17, we come to Esther's turn. She spends the night in the king's bed, and what do you know? He ends up picking her as a replacement queen. What a coincidence. Isn't Esther a lucky girl? Look how verse 17 records it. 
says she won grace and favor in his sight. Now just think for a second, that reminds us of that statement back in verse 9 when she won favor in Haggai's sight. Again, tuck that away, we're going to come back to it. And finally, as this episode ends, the king who loves feast, we've already seen that in chapter 1, surprise, surprise, throws another party. He gives everyone a tax cut. He gives everyone gifts, verse 18, and everyone's kind of on a high. No wonder Esther was such a popular figure in Persia. No, no, No wonder she was such a popular figure in Jewish culture even to this day. And chapter 2 then ends with what seems like a little postscript. Oh yeah, let me tell you about Mordecai. What's he been up to? While the spotlight shines squarely on Esther and her triumph in the bedroom, Mordecai's checking in on her progress every day. How's Esther doing? What's going on? Are you you making it okay? Just checking in on you. And in the course of hanging around the king's gate, Mordecai just happens to discover an insurrection plot against the king. And this rebellion is being fomented by one of the king's closest closest servants. It's one of the eunuchs that's mentioned in chapter 1. And Mordecai reports it to Esther. And Esther, who's now the queen, in turn reports it to the king in Mordecai's name. And Mordecai's heroic and loyal actions get recorded then in the king's book, the Chronicles. Just another interesting coincidence, right? But that episode, that event, we need to stay tuned in the coming weeks to see if that's just a throwaway line, oh, it just happened to happen, or if it's really going to be a key turning point in the story, even in this action-packed episode. If we're paying attention to the way the author tells the story, and it's really written as this intricate piece of literature and story, it's clear that even though God is never mentioned by name, there is some force behind it all directing events. We believe God's providential hand is directing all of history down to the minute detail. Let's look at how the author sets up this force behind the scenes. Go back and look, look with me throughout the story. Um, many of the key verbs as we read the story are in the passive voice. Something happens to a character. So verse 6, Mordecai had been carried into exile. Young women were gathered for the contest in verse 8. Esther was taken with the young women into the contest Also, verse 8, when Esther goes into the king for her one-night stand, verse 16, the text, the story writer records it as this, when Esther was taken. And finally, when, when he learns about the plot against the king, the author records, verse 22, that this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. If we look at it from the way the author is telling the story, It's not exactly clear who the prime actor is in all of this. And the reader is left to wonder and ask the question, are all of these mere coincidences or happenstance? Or is there really someone behind all of this? And I think this is exactly the question that the author intends us as readers to ask. 
And he's given us another clue. I want you to see it. It's that phrase that I pointed to you in verse 9 and verse 17. Remember, Esther is said to have pleased him and won his favor. Verse 9, in relationship to Haggai. Similarly, when she went into the king, verse 17, she won grace and favor in his sight. And in both cases, the author uses a word in Hebrew that is the word hesed. And it's a very loaded word in the original language, a very loaded word that points directly to the covenant between God and his people. Oftentimes it's translated God's steadfast love or his loving kindness. And it originates back in a story in Exodus 34. Remember this uh, account, remember the story, Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He's dealing with God while the people are down the mountain doing lots of partying and weird stuff. But Moses asks God, show me your glory. And God, of course, denies the request because no one can see God and live. But instead, God hides Moses in that little crevasse in the rock. And he says, I'm going to pass by you and you're going to see just the trailing edge of my glory. That's all you can handle. And as he passes by, he declares himself to Moses. He tells Moses, this is who I am. It's uh, it's a, a primary passage in the Old Testament. This is what it says. He's revealing himself, and as he passes by Moses, he says this. This is Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations. And he goes on and he says a few more things. But God uses that same word here in establishing his relationship with his people that will eventually be formalized in covenant. God uses this word hesed about himself and it becomes central to the worship of the Hebrew people. In fact, if you were to look in scripture, at what scripture scripture quotes the most in other words, writers of Scripture go back and they say, oh, as it has been said, or as the prophets told you, or whatever. This piece of Scripture from Exodus 34 is the thing that is most often quoted throughout the entire Bible. It's this hesed, this steadfast love of God for his people. And it's the paradigm that God says is how he's going to work in history. And right here in the story of Esther, two times at crucial points, the author writing about Esther records that key people show their hesed to Esther in order to advance her cause and to put her in a place of influence. Now, God is not mentioned by name, but the author clearly wants us as readers to see him as the one who is working behind the scenes. And when these two men show Esther their hesed, the hand of God was active. And I guarantee you that if you were to talk to the original readers of the book of Esther, they would have been very, very clear on that. They read the word hesed. Oh, that's God working. And so I wonder what about us? 
What happens when you don't see God in the front of the story? When you don't see him clearly in the picture? Are you going to assume that he's absent? Or are you going to have that trust for him? When unforeseen circumstances come, when disaster strikes, those are the times that provide an instant read on our understanding and belief of who God is. And all too often, a person, even a Christian's first instinct, is to ask with that whiny voice, where is God in all of this? Those who trust God, those who have understood him through his word, should assume that he's working even when we can't see him. And if we don't see him, maybe we need to look harder or maybe we just need a better understanding of his character and his care for his people because he's proven it again and again throughout history. God does not abandon his people, and the book of Esther, despite all evidence to the contrary, is a tribute to that fact. We're going to read about a crisis in the next several weeks, and in the midst of that crisis, Haman is working hard to wipe out the entire Jewish population, and he almost succeeds. And it would have been easy for the people to think that God had abandoned them. Think about those original readers of the book of Esther. They lived a world that was post-exile. And in that moment, God was silent for 400 plus years. No prophets, no word from the Lord. And they certainly were wondering, has God abandoned us? Is he done with us? And the book of Esther, at least in part, was written to answer that question definitively. No. Even when God seems to be absent, his people can be confident that he's providentially directing circumstances to bring about good results for his people. He will never abandon his people, even when we can't see his plan. And I would submit to you, the less that we know of God's character, the more you are prone to hopelessness in his absence. Only when we know God and relate to him intimately can we have the strength and the perspective to face difficult times, especially when he's not showing himself in the picture. And just like the Jews have the stories of their ancestors to help them rely on God's care for his people. We have all of those same stories and more in his word to help us know him. I wonder if that could be helpful to us in our present situation, in the difficult circumstances of the past year or more. And if you go to social media or if you go to other people for answers about what's happening or where you can find your hope, you will have all kinds of answers. Open the schools. Don't take away our rights. Lots of answers. Maybe people are even asking, why isn't God doing something about this? I thought he loved people. I thought he was all powerful. Where is God and why doesn't he do something? He is. He is working. And you and I can be confident 
in that. We may not know exactly what. We may not know exactly how. We may not know exactly where he's working, but he is working and we can be confident. You know why I can say that? Because he's proven himself throughout history. Pete pointed this out last week. I love this. Even the secular authorities and the sinners in the book of Esther are used by God for his purposes. And we could get all bent out of shape. What's happening politically? What happened the past four years? What's going to happen the next four years? How is our republic going to possibly survive? How are, is our Christian, Christian faith possibly going to survive? Didn't God work through Haggai? Didn't God use the debauchery of the king? Why shouldn't he continue to work similarly in our nation through our secular rulers? Several hundred years after the Esther episode, there was another moment in history when all hope seemed lost. The Roman Empire ruled the land. They occupied the nation of Israel and these Authorities, these secular authorities, seem to be working against God's will as they took Jesus and they nailed him to the cross. They killed the Son of God, and by all appearances, the all-powerful God of the universe stood by silently and let it happen. Was he too weak to stop mankind's the greatest evil? No, we know that God's plan could not be thwarted and the ultimate triumph came as he directed the evil actions of these wicked men to accomplish his purposes in bringing about salvation for all mankind. Remember back to the, the, the beginning, Gandalf riding in from the east to bring about victory in the face of certain defeat. Remember Esther being placed in a position of influence to save the Jewish nation just when all hope seemed to be lost. We remember Jesus allowing himself to be crucified, but rising again the third day to conquer sin and death just so when all hope seemed lost in our broken relationship with God, we could be brought to salvation. Even when God seems absent, we could be confident that he is providentially directing circumstances for the good of his people. God is the hero of every single story. Let's pray. Father, you have used your Holy Spirit to inspire men to write the words of Scripture, to reveal yourself to us. We are grateful for that because when we read your word, we come to know you. And Father, we come here this morning to this gathering of your people to worship you in view of who you are. We don't always get it, God, and we're not always meant to get it. Your ways are higher than our ways, but God, we trust that you are working and God, that's what we proclaim in worship even when, uh, even when our hearts are confused and desperate and despairing. God, we proclaim in worship that you are working, that you are great, that you are faithful, and that we trust you. Father, I pray that uh, if for those who find themselves in desperate circumstances today, 
Father, that they would look to you. Perhaps they would look to you for the first time, never having come into a saving relationship with you. Father, I pray that you would work powerfully in those circumstances. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Follow us on Facebook to keep up to date with all our latest content. Thank you.